watching all movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here, Here comes, comes the binge. binge. Hey everybody, welcome to The Binge, in which a couple of homos review the latest movie theater releases. I am Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Olarte, and this week we have, count them, four movies. Four. Uh, the past couple of weeks we've only had one, and uh, you know we're nothing if, uh, uh, if not unbalanced. <laughs> so this week we have four, which are Their Finest... Graduation, Colossal, and Unforgettable. And as always, we're going to rate these on a three-tiered scale, with Binger being our highest rating. Consuming moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And sending back means... Life's too short for that mess. So we're just going to plow right on ahead. We're going to skip what's up with you. Frankly, right? we don't ever care, right? <laughs> I don't. It's and, a formality. And genuinely, I have nothing to say this week. Uh, but guys, yeah, we are, we are uh, just diving into these four, making up for last time. And we are actually doing... Not one, but two back-to-back spoil-that-shit segments this week. Mm -hmm. So the second two films we're reviewing this week, Colossal and Unforgettable, we will be spoiling. Uh, And we're not saying they're both equally as bad as movies, since the idea behind spoil-that-shit is to just spoil shitty movies. But we just feel like to thoroughly discuss Colossal and the reasons why we aren't crazy about it, we have to talk about the whole movie. Gotta do the whole thing. Unforgettable, on the other hand, is just a complete disaster. Uh, so that's going to be more <laughs> of the old-fashioned, um, taking us back to collateral beauty. Mm, yeah. Just a vengeful spoil. Where it all begat. Um, but the first movie of the week is uh, their finest, which is the pick of the week. Pick of the week. Pick of the week. Pick, pick, pick. A British film crew attempts to boost morale during World War II by making a propaganda film after the Blitzkrieg. Too long. Lose half. Which half? The half you don't need. People like films because stories are structure. When things turn bad, it's still part of a plan. There's a point to it. All those people gave their sons to one war and now their grandsons to another. We'll have them weeping in the aisles. Mrs. Cole, I thought you was under it. So this is a movie about World War II, um, Britain, yet somehow Michelle Rodriguez is not in it at all. I realize we're breaking from our established brand by talking about films that don't co-star Michelle Rodriguez. Seems like an oversight. But try to stay with us, and maybe if nothing else, we'll just find the perfect Michelle Rodriguez movie to pair with each of these films. I mean... Michi loves the Allies, if I remember correctly. <laughs> no, we can't. We can't go down this alley again. <laughs> so you love this movie. I love this. I'm movie. so surprised. I Are mean, because you? you know, it's a little bit about war. I guess it's. I guess it's about war in a way that you would like. It's about <laughs> what Hollywood. Is that? What the hell does that mean? You know how uh, courageous you can be without ever doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly, um, how, you know, dangerous. How dare you? <laughs> you a, know, it's a, this is a story, story about a female trailblazer. Yeah, there are stories of cowards that everyone needs to. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, a female trailblazer. Yes. Yeah, it feels like this movie is, uh, in, in kind of like the next movie, it's a small story set against a big backdrop. This is actually a huge oh, story. Never mind. This, is, this one's clearly one I didn't see. This is this is a kitchen sink movie. This is mm. like, okay, so this is, it's a backstage comedy. It's a love triangle. It's a tragic melodrama. It's a war picture. It's feminist historical fiction. It is like in everything in the kitchen sink movie. And the amazing thing is how well it all pulls itself off. 
I don't mean it jerks itself off. Um, how well it all comes together. Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, and how just completely, thoroughly buoyant and delightful it is the entire time. So even though it it's it, you know deals with very serious matters and you know the presence of war and of these air raids mm-hmm. um, is is always there. And there are characters who are just snuffed out um, with the with the abruptness of war mm-hmm. of living in in war torn London. Um, you know, through all of that, there's just that resolutely upbeat British stiff upper lip thing going on with this film. The film could not be more British. Um, and uh, and it, it, it just it has this uh, tremendous ensemble cast. Uh, it's it's directed by Lana Scherfig. Uh, she previously directed In Education starring mm-hmm. Carrie Mulligan. Uh, she's actually Danish, um, Lana Scherfig is, um, but uh, she sure excels at telling these British stories. And uh, their finest uh, is 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 probably her favorite movie, of, uh, in my opinion, um, that she's that she's done yet. Uh, I saw it previously. I saw it first in Toronto seven months ago. Nearly nearly going to start lapping these things. It's going to be over mm-hmm. a year any minute now. And uh, and uh, it, you know, it's it's so it's all those things that I mentioned. The feminist historical fiction part is interesting, um, if only because what we see here is a story about representation behind the scenes of filmmaking uh so as uh, as you would glean from the trailer uh this character katrin played by Gemma arderton is brought in to work in the ministry of information's film division and she under she thinks she's being called in for a secretarial job it turns out that they are looking for somebody to help with script writing for these you know basically the the so-called propaganda films mm-hmm. that are being made during the war to boost morale, and they need somebody to write the slop, which is what they call the women's dialogue. Mm. Um, and so, the which is weird that that why it always says slop on the script for the intro yes. my, during my part. <laughs> it's like parentheses, <laughs> and I'm parentheses slop Rebecca Willarte, and the, right. okay, now it all yes. makes sense. Yes, as you've seen whenever I refer to you in the blog. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, and it's like Jason yep. and Sloppy are at it again. <laughs> And all that time you thought it was just an affectionate nickname. I mean, it's it's. it's, I, it's I started dressing well, up. Listen, it's not a, it's not offensive. It's an industry term. <laughs> it's just industry speak. You gotta you gotta understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so she's brought in to write the slop, and um and it's interesting that they actually would even think that far that they would think like, well, let's bring in a woman to write the women's mm-hmm. dialogue. Even that feels somehow more evolved, right? Um, so at least that gets her foot in the door, and um and then they're looking for this the right picture to tell because they've just released a film that no one liked um, a, a propaganda movie that didn't really take with the public and so then they find this true story of these um these two um these two sisters who had gone out to who had sent who uh, taken a boat out to dunkirk which is um you know world war ii uh site which is now going to be the, <laughs> the new movie uh, yes it was not gonna be the new christopher nolan movie mm-hmm. Um, which I was not aware of when I first saw this movie, and uh, so they, she has this idea of like, well, let's let's try to turn this story into uh, into a film, and then right away, um, you know, she starts being um, kind of overruled by the the men, the male creators around her, being like, okay, well, cool, so we'll just come up with a romantic male lead that one of the sisters can fall in love with, and he'll do all the heroic stuff that they did in real life. And um, and she's just like, oh, but that that's not what happened. And they're like, well, oh, we're gonna have a female do the heroic stuff? No, 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 that's ridiculous. Don't be ridiculous. Um, and uh, and so she has to kind of persevere over the course of the production. So the whole the whole movie of their finest 
basically traces from the very, very beginning of the pre-production of this movie within the movie um, on through when it's out in theaters. And a whole lot of stuff happens over the course of that timeline. Uh, so, but she kind of, you know, sticks with it. Katrin sticks with it. Um, and, you know, is ultimately able to sort of wield more influence in like, let's, you know, find ways to have our, our women be more realistic mm-hmm. and to have dialogue that women would say. And then, you know, gradually kind of be like, how can we give them something more interesting to do than to just be in the background while the men do everything? Uh, so it, that's just, that's not to reduce the whole movie down to just that, because it is so much more than that. Mm-hmm. But that's certainly the part that's the easiest to get behind politically. Um, so there's also a, a documentary series on Netflix right now. It's called Five Came Back. And it's like five modern directors uh, look at five directors during World War II who um, kind of um, worked on these propaganda films. Did, were you uh, familiar with the propaganda industry of World War II? Um, I was vaguely aware of it. Um, I think that, like, I was aware in particular of, like, the more nefarious German, like, mm. Nazi propaganda, Third Reich like propaganda, Lenny Riefenstahl. Riefenstahl? Did you say first Stephenstahl? Stephenstahl? Riefenstahl. Yes. Yeah, Lenny Riefenstahl or whatever. So she, you know, made Triumph of the Will and... Um, so, uh, and, uh, there was, when, when Scott and I were in Berlin last year, we went to a museum, Berlin's film museum. And, um, one of the, um, rooms in it is the entire room is about the people in the German film industry who cooperated with the third Reich. Mm. Um, but it's been done up very dramatically. So that the room actually looks like a morgue. Oh, it, wow. it looks like a mausoleum and there's no information just sitting out. You have to pull the drawers open one by one to like read about to see the, the the plaques about the different people and who they were and what they did and if they eventually defected and when they were killed uh so in terms of the british propaganda and american mm-hmm. propaganda i feel like the word propaganda in general has such like an ex- it, it, it has such like a sort of a bad connotation like mm-hmm. like you know propaganda we hear that it just sounds like oh that, that that just completely diminishes and destroys any credibility a thing could have yeah, I mean, I think propaganda. I mean, propaganda has been going on since like BC, and mm-hmm. the word comes from uh, Catholic, the Catholic Church, okay. trying to like propagate the Catholicism around uh, oh. the world. So you know, naturally, it has a connotation. Sure. So, but in this film, like the story that they're telling is only it's propaganda in the sense that it is meant to boost morale mm-hmm. in the public. And uh, and it is also it has a very strategic mission, which is to get the Americans to join the British war effort. And uh, they they uh, which it which it which extends to adding um, sort of a famous uh, American soldier to the cast mm. who has no acting ability. And he's played by Jake Lacey from. Oh. yes. <laughs> from Obvious Child and Miss Sloan in the office. And girls, um, so uh, which in a very very funny performance uh, because yeah, just z- not not an actor, and so uh, so much of the film's uh, joy and delight kind of comes from its its sort of knowing depiction of like the production of a film, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know just like them trying to figure out how to do workarounds for this American who they need for like strategic purposes, but who can't actually act. Also trying to cater to the, you know, egomaniacal whims of like this aging male diva actor played mm-hmm. by Bill Nighy, who is so good in this movie. <laughs> it is maybe the best he's ever been. It's such a perfect supporting performance. 
so they have all that going on. And uh, uh, so, it, but yeah, so this is specifically about just the making of a, a narrative scripted morale boosting film in mm-hmm. England. Um, I believe it starts in like 1940 is the timeline mm. for when this is, um, when the story within the story starts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so it's not really about, um, you know, going out into battle or anything. It, it takes place entirely back at home, back in, you know, back in London, back where they're doing the film shoots. Which, which was, I mean, in a, in a sense, a battlefield, a, a battlefield. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not a front, but a, but mm-hmm. a battlefield. For yeah. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because yeah, they're, there are a number of bombings that come entirely mm-hmm. too close to the characters in the film. Mm-hmm. So basically, this is the behind the scenes of 13 Hours. No. No. Um, so I don't, do want, you... don't want the stink of that movie attached to this in any way. Do you, uh, that's why it's not called Our Finest. It's called Their Finest. <laughs> because it's us versus them. I mean, Our Finest is not great. So the movie that they're making, is it, so like there were sort of these like, you know film reels so people would go to the theater and see and kind of like get caught up on like what's going on mm-hmm. and like little films there and then there were like was this supposed to be kind of like a high budget big release film film that they're mm-hmm. making yeah they're making like a full film okay um and um although at one point katrin is sort of put on writing like the 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 reels like the mm-hmm. the the news reel like the informational reels and things like the, the scripted things mm-hmm. um so uh that that is also addressed and we see sort of like the making of one of those but yeah no this is about like a giant gotcha huge movie that ultimately you know finds a, a, a huge audience with it being like a heroic movie about movies do you think this is going to do well in award season well when i first saw this i was convinced this came to tiff on the market last september it did not have a distributor and I was like, oh my God, this has like Weinstein Company or Focus written all over it. They're going to snatch it up. It is going to be a major awards contender. This could be in the best picture field. And then none of them bought it. Hmm. And um, it ended up being um, picked up by, uh, I think, STX for US distribution. Some company called Europa Corp got it for international. And then I think STX is releasing it, which is a Chinese company, is releasing it uh, stateside. Huh. And uh, so I don't know. I feel like I'm worried. This is like, going... oh yeah, propaganda. This is going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they, they, this is a hard the, sell. The pitch, the pitch, the pitch. You know, was bought in the room. But uh, <laughs> so I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm really bummed because I feel like this movie is not going to have any kind of awards push, and mm. it certainly is deserving. If if a movie like The King's Speech can actually yeah. win Best Picture, um, then I think their finest is meriting of at least a nomination because I, I, I think it is that caliber of movie mm. and it is very much a tribute to the power of film and the way that people use films during difficult times and mm. i think certainly almost worldwide we're in a place where we need uh you know stories about you know that that experience mm-hmm. um you know and stories that give us that experience and their finest is both are you looking for a, a new propaganda film right now what would it be about a <laughs> new propaganda film yeah. right now I mean, I feel like it would need to be a propaganda film that somehow tricks um, people who support Trump into understanding that they should not. (laughs) So what story would that be? Uh... It's like something that makes it seem really, really awesome to like be a compassionate person (laughs) who cares about other people (laughs) and, uh, you know, and who believes in the power of community (laughs) internationally Mm -hmm. and domestically. And the uh, believes in the uh, the damage that racism can do, yeah. and um, yeah, 
Yeah, so that's... Preaches empathy. Right. I mean, we're probably describing almost every single movie and every single TV That's show. true. That You know, that's... I feel like it's been done before. It's been done. It hasn't It hasn't hit the mark. Mm. Uh, it has not found uh, the, the change that, uh, that we're hoping that it would. But... Uh, but, you know, I think that's the thing about propaganda now versus then is that people are a lot more media savvy now and a lot more critical and discerning when they're watching things. And they mm. kind of tell whenever something is trying too overtly to give them a message. And people mm-hmm. don't like that. People don't feel like they're being overtly f- having a message forced on them. That's true. And um, as opposed to, you know, audiences in like 1940 where film was still a relatively new medium. Mm-hmm. And it, was, it wasn't as obvious. I mean, there are a lot of movies where you'd get this line about... Uh, like Humphrey Bogart's going to go fight with the fascists in Spain. And it was mm-hmm. like, oh, wait a minute. That was a message. <laughs> you know, maybe not, you know, you know, uh, something. Obviously, that wouldn't have been like sanctioned by the government. But, you know, yeah. screenwriters got their, right. their it was, messages it, through. It was a more innocent time. And, uh, and film was certainly sort of co-opted for a while to be like, well, this needs to be about reinforcing you know, cultural, national mores and values. And, mm. um, and that's not, you know, that their film has been through a lot of revolution since then and no longer, that's no longer the standard. Yeah. I mean, even shortly after, like um, the best years of our lives has mm-hmm. this look at, uh, you know, post-war and the damage it does to people, you know, obviously clearly not a propaganda film, but like, you mm-hmm. know, quickly film was able to sort of like take another right, glance pivot, at these things. Yeah. Paths, pivot. Paths of glory. Yeah. Um, so you're giving this a binge it? Yes, mm-hmm. binge it. This movie is like, and I really, you know, I feel like this has been a very kind of like serious conversation around it, but it is a crowd pleaser. It is a full on crowd pleaser. Um, and yet, which I generally dislike, and yet somehow I don't with this. Mm. It's a crowd pleaser, but it has enough sort of like wit and verve that I was just like, just smitten. Like I just, I just, both times I've seen this movie, I just sat there just smiling. Uh, so I, I, I really, really recommend uh, seeking it out. Um, their finest is rated R for some language and a scene of sexuality. And that brings us to our second movie, a movie that has no trailer uh, because it is a Romanian movie. Um, and Jason is still lacking on his uh, Duolingo in <laughs> Romanian. I'm keep, I keep getting reminders that you aren't, aren't achieving your tasks. <laughs> Need to turn those off. After an attack before a college entrance exam jeopardizes his daughter's future, Romeo thinks of ways of solving the situation, but none of them follow the principles that he taught his daughter. So this is one that we both saw. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> both of the it's next two movies we yeah. both saw. Um, and I, you know, I have not seen um, their finest, but this would have been my pick of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed this uh, this film. I feel like this is one that fits right into it's like the perfect kind of movie that I enjoy, where you sit there sort of squirming because. Um, decisions in the world aren't easy to make mm-hmm. and um the world's not black and white and, and yet there's also clear moralizing <laughs> 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 rebecca olarte special yeah it's a, it's a very specific but it's, uh, like, it really tickles me listen i'm not populist <laughs> um so yeah so we have this movie about um as as we mentioned uh, a guy who uh lives in romania in a small town uh, with his wife and daughter. And the Romanian setting is, is key. Yes. Uh, in ways that we probably don't understand. Uh, I know I certainly don't. Uh, I have tried. Romanian, Romanian movies are always about this. Mm. Um, I mean, it's a I, big... And I know that's for a reason. Um, but I have never fully studied up on, mm. like, the Romanian situation. So <laughs> I just made a very dismissive hand gesture <laughs> when I said that. So I'm always yeah. like, I'm just like, so it's about corruption. 
um, societal decay. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the director uh, is Christian Mondieu. And he previously made Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, Mm -hmm. which was a great film. Uh, For this film, he shared Best Director at Cannes last year with um, Olivier Assayas for Personal Shopper. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and so we have here another story about, you know, it's deceptively simple. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just about uh, this this well-heeled doctor uh, who wants his daughter, who's graduating high school, to go. She has... A scholarship to attend Cambridge and to leave Romania. Um, the scholarship depends on how she performs on a test, mm-hmm. like a standardized test of some sort. Um, but then she is sexually assaulted, and it fucks with her head, of course. And um, and so he uh, starts just greasing palms left and right. He is positioned as a respected doctor to do so. Mm-hmm. And um, and so to get his daughter out of this sort of, you know, clearly he does not think of Romania as being a great place. We know that they were exiled. He and his wife had been exiled during communism. Um, mm-hmm. And then after communism, they returned to the country. But they still are like, he in particular is like, this is no great place. I want my daughter to have better. So in that sense, it's like they sort of the classic, you know, parental uh, narrative of just like trying to do whatever it takes to give your child a better life. Mm-hmm. Um, but possibly being a complete hypocrite in the process and, right. and then tarnishing the entire thing by going about it with no integrity mm-hmm. um i mean i think i also don't know very much about what you would what you have called the romanian situation mm-hmm. um but i but i do feel like that that's a, a really important factor here even like knowing just a little bit mm-hmm. in terms of uh, i was under the impression that he had just he and his wife had left and gone to college got an education came back after 91 so you know communism's gone but you know the whole sort of system there is that as I've learned from watching the Americans, <laughs> my, my master class in, uh, so in in communist culture. You're like, so Felicity was saying. <laughs> Why'd you get her? Um, but, you know, the only way you can get something done in a situation like that is by, you know, just a series of deals and corruption. And and so he, it's it's mentioned in the, in the movie that he came back trying to do things, you know, he probably right saw way. an opportunity. Yeah, he was, as you mentioned, uh, a well-respected doctor. And he and a lot of the people that are his peers um, have have seen them have tried to live their lives outside of the shadow of you know what they grew up in, and so for him to be to have to turn to this sort of um, you know mm-hmm. making deals and, and 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 corruption to 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 get around the situation that's just not fair. Right, he has his to daughter works really system. hard. He right. does. Yeah, he has to use a corrupt system to to get this better thing. And it goes against like everything that he has like pretty much stood for. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes it like a you know it's a real. It's a real conundrum for him um, because, it, you know, again, it's a situation. His daughter was attacked. You know, she's clearly not at fault. He's not at fault. But he, but the system is really rigid. Mm-hmm. And so he only has kind of one thing he can do. And it's it's it, he doesn't feel great about it. Um, Although he's also not a great guy at the because he already has a mistress. I mean, yes. You know, so yes. like so we're not meant to think he's not being portrayed. And, you know, granted, like better to have a movie where people are flawed and realistic. Absolutely. I'm not saying mm-hmm. he should have been a plaster saint. But, you know, so it's not like he's this person who's like, everything I do is morally upright. No, no, he's definitely, I mean, it, 
I think when when I walked out, I felt like the story was just it was very human and very heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his marriage is kind of a mess. His, his wife is clearly like depressed and mm-hmm. withdrawn. Spends and, a lot of time just smoking and staring out the window. Mm-hmm, as as film likes to portray depression mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a very specific <laughs> way. Um, Every Thursday, so I walk in affair. here and you're just vaping and staring out the window. <laughs> <laughs> you're like modern days would be a vape pen thank you very much <laughs> picked up on the signal never asked me how i'm doing <laughs> but um so even i feel like his affair is like not particularly egregious like it stands it stands in contrast to the fact that the family is very close in spite of that in spite of the fact that their marriage is kind of uh unhappy um it is super clear how much they love their daughter and how mm-hmm. much she loves them they that in that way they're very close-knit right and then you know he goes to his wife with this you know this ability to help fix her scores and, and she mm-hmm. has one opinion that's a little bit more clear but his you know his driving force yeah. at that point is he will do anything to get his daughter out of this country he's come back he saw it isn't what he could make it he tried to make things different mm-hmm. his generation could he doesn't think that she can right um and then it sort of gets interesting because She's also just a teenager, so yeah. she has this boyfriend here at home, and Who's at some very point, cute. okay, um, all right, he was. I wasn't expecting that. Um, <laughs> and there are so many unattractive people in this movie, and then that guy shows up. I'm like, hey. <laughs> it is definitely You've a, got a nice nose. I mean, both the architecture and the visuals are very, very um, drab. bleak. Um, but then you're kind of wondering not not that you necessarily think that like she wasn't attacked because you know it's very clear, and, and there's you know no point where you would think that that's not true but you're kind of like um does she even want to go because you know you you know you're in high school and you have all your friends there and she has this boyfriend and she loves her family and Mm -hmm. so she kind of doesn't want to go and then you know the rest of his family doesn't really want her to leave so it's just there are a lot of moving parts that are very realistic and it makes the situation very uncomfortable very confusing and very sad for everyone involved it does it's romanian (laughs) uh is what we're trying to say in a nutshell it's a real romanian story uh, yeah, we have a lot of sort of like, you know, you know, philosophical conversations around basically the ends versus the means. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the divide between the doctor and his wife, because the doctor says it's all about the result. And his wife says, absolutely not. It's all about how you get there. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, is it is like, you know, how you play the game versus winning, you know, basically. Right. Um, and uh, and the doctor is just, you know, he loves his daughter so intensely that he, you know, I think a lot of parents would relate to this, you know. Um, yeah. And I think that he... Also is having that kind of struggle of being like, well, I want to, I know what's best for my daughter, um, but now she's at the age where she does get to choose. And so Mm -hmm. he's making all these sacrifices and they have one of those conversations that I feel like, I can't remember the last, there's some movie or TV show where this exact conversation, this argument was had where a parent was like, I did all this for you. And the kid was like, I never asked you to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the, the last one I saw. That was you on the phone with your mom like a week ago. <laughs> I, was, I would never. <laughs> I would never. Um, no. Um, and then in the thing I saw, like the parent hauled off and like slapped the kid. Like, how dare you? Mm. Um, so I kept waiting for that to happen. But they never did because the father just like worships his daughter. He really does. And uh, just, you know, and then even to the point where like we find out through the um through the rape kit you know he finds out that his daughter isn't a virgin and even that we see is like quietly shakes him because you know mm-hmm. he just has this vision of his daughter as this perfect princess and um i will i would also like to commend the film for the way that it handles sexual assault um because it does it in a way where it is not shown mm-hmm. um and i think that that's kind of and yet you feel the full weight of it just Absolutely. through the actress's performance through the way that it affects the character, the way that it's written. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is something where it's a conversation, certainly that's been happening a lot in American culture, kind of like 
peak Game of Thrones rapiness. Um, you know, we were getting to a point where it's like, okay, like we can't, it's irresponsible to keep putting images of, of violence against women, especially sexual violence against women mm-hmm. out there. It's the anti-L. Um, it is the anti-L. Um, but, you know, but certainly like, you know, if you have to depict it, then it should be about the effect it has on the woman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it should not be about the rapist. It should not be about the effect that it has on some other guy who's watching. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like it's it should be about how it impacts the woman. And, uh, you know, and in this case, we do get that. And it doesn't make us watch that scene play out. But there's never any question of mm-hmm. the impact that it has. And um, and uh, and so and it reminded me of uh, of the salesman in mm. uh, in that way, which I don't think we ever got to review on the show. I don't think so. Um, but did you did you ever watch it? I don't remember. Uh, that was another um, great, uh, <laughs> and, that, and that was Iran. That was Iranian. That ended oh up, no, I that, missed that, that one. Ended yeah. up winning best foreign film at mm-hmm. the Oscars this year, and that's another story where, sort of like the pivotal event that that puts the story into motion is some sort of sexual assault, um, and it happens off camera, and then you know the rest of it is left for us to sort of figure out just based on performances, based on the writing. Mm-hmm. So I feel like you know people have, have you know filmmakers, TV makers have gotten a bit too comfortable throwing sexual assault or rape into something just to be mm-hmm. like edgy, or you know just to or in some misguided belief that it's more feminist to show brutal rape than it is to show the impact of it. Uh, so I think that uh, graduation is on the right track with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a very it's a very small and quiet movie mm-hmm. um, and yet so tense so so tense it is really very uncomfortable and um, because you know once you kind of go down this road with someone who and maybe this is me because I you know if this is kind of how I navigate the world but once you get into a situation where you're doing something wrong you know you constantly feel like you're going to get caught mm-hmm. um, and that that tension is palpable throughout as soon as he mm-hmm. starts to like put those wheels in motion right um snowballs it, it, yeah it snowballs and and the tension in is really is really intense yeah just all the different lies like that's the thing you tell you tell one lie then you tell a lie to cover that lie up and then mm-hmm. you grease a palm to cover up that thing and uh, and <laughs> then uh, you then you run over a dog to exactly. cover that thing up <laughs> right exactly then your palms are just so greasy <laughs> that's the reason you run over the dog because you're you couldn't have any grip on the tie, on the on the on the wheel mixed with dog blood oh my god it's an, it's a it's a romanian movie yes <laughs> once again to be clear it's a romanian movie yeah yeah i mean i feel like the 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 weight of the corruption wouldn't be the same if it was done here mm. uh, because there isn't that sort of stigma it isn't as much as of what like you know he lived like how he lived his life and the decisions mm. he made about the way he you know came back and and the part of coming back i think felt he had a bit of responsibility for what happened to his daughter, you know, living in this town that because mm-hmm. well, he's very like he's these always, people aren't educated and this is a terrible yeah. town and like we live amongst animals. And he was also with his mistress when it happened. Yeah, there's that. He's also with his mistress later in the film when there's a terrible accident involving his mother. Mm-hmm. So he has, you know, so he's always... He basically should never do anything wrong because he gets caught every <laughs> you know, time. Isn't that the way life always feels? <laughs> it's <laughs> a cautionary tale. Like a bad girl one time. One time. Okay, two times. Um, so yeah, so I, I would, I definitely give this a binge it. Yeah, no, I would give it a binge it as well. Uh, and it's rated R for some language, but is in Romanian. <laughs> <laughs> right. So if you're deeply offended by seeing the word fuck written in a subtitle, then, <laughs> then cover your eyes. But if you do that, you're not going to know what they're saying. I know. Um, so that, uh, uh, ends the, um, uh, the non-spoilery part show. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. That ends the good films. And we're going to get into um, the spoiling movies. And the first one is Colossal. Gloria drinks too hard and parties too much. Her boyfriend has had enough of it and throws her out. 
Gloria returns to her hometown dreaming of making a new start, but instead revives her childhood friendship with Oscar, who runs a bar. After drinking a night away with Oscar and his friends, she wakes up to discover a gigantic monster rampaging through Seoul and realizes that somehow the monster is connected to her. I just looked at the news and I think I'm in shock. A giant monster just materialized over Seoul. That happened like nine hours ago. You were just hearing about this. What have you been doing all day? You ever notice how it just keeps destroying everything in its path, but it never looks down? It's like it's being operated by remote control. So I think I, I want to talk a little bit about why we decided to spoil the shit about this movie. At least one of my motivating factors. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is because I was so looking forward to this movie. Mm-hmm. And I still believe that uh, a core part of the premise is so good. And I'm really upset that it now can't be made again mm-hmm. in a way that I want it to be made. Yeah. Uh, I think you agree? Yeah, no, uh, I I would agree. Uh, this this is a, a film that uh, well I can get into this later, but yeah, uh, there, get into it now. There's, <laughs> well, okay, so um, you know this was another TIFF movie. I was actually I was at the world premiere of this with the cast in attendance, and you know Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis and the director and um, Nacho. Uh, yes, Nacho. Um, and uh, you know, and I think that. It was certainly looking at the lineup for movies last year at the festival. I was like, oh, everyone's talking about, oh, the Anne Hathaway monster movie. Gotta see that. Gotta see that. And I saw it with five of my colleagues. And after it was over, three of the three of us on the left all turned to each other and were like, holy shit, that was awful. And the three of us to my right were like, that was amazing. This is going to be one of the biggest sales of the festival. Wow. And so just neatly just cut right down the middle um, on this one. And I think it's that kind of polarizing movie, even like looking through the Rotten Tomatoes reviews, um, you know, it does have more people who like it than don't. Hmm. But um, but but there's no in between. <laughs> there's no like there's no like people either are just like, oh, this is so genius or they're just like, oh, God, this is like so fucking just misbegotten. I would tend to agree with the negative reviews that. Mm-hmm. They basically say, you know, it's sort of like a one joke premise and there's, Mm -hmm. it's a novelty movie. It's novelty. And then it tries to pull a switcheroo in the final act and become not a novelty movie, but a very serious movie. Mm -hmm. And wow, it is not prepared for that. It does not earn that. It's not convincing in that. And it it completely destroys the fun that you've been having up until that point in the film. Yeah, I think you and I are both fans of a certain kind of, you know, like female driven hot mess comedy. Sure. That this could have been. Yeah. And I think that we can like we are like visualizing not like we alone in the world, but like uh we're in that camp that can visualize how great this would be. You know, you're picturing mm-hmm. some sort of like almost like Amy Schumer like uh train wreck mm-hmm. but with this monster and with Anne Hathaway. Right. And I mean like, like something about like yeah, what it could have been. Like a drunk mess who has this this monster avatar that's there to sort of like make her realize her impact on uh the world around her. Mm-hmm. Uh hilarious. Hilarious premise. Even the I mean like the poster is hilarious. It's yeah, the like her great. with like the monster behind her. Right, they're doing both, the same thing. They're tick. both just like staring kind of like blankly. Yeah, it's it's hilarious. Yeah. Um but no, the movie uh wow. Yeah, it fucks it right up. Really fucks it up. Um so, you know, we have to talk about the second half which is um which is the spoilers. So, uh we have Anne Hathaway 
And, uh, the, and then I guess was, so we can say that we're so we're going to jump into the spoilers now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you don't want to know what happens um, in this movie, uh, then stop listening now. Um, if you would like to still hear the fourth review for Unforgettable, which will also be a spoil of that ship, it's a movie that I think is far less anticipated <laughs> than, mm-hmm. than Colossal, mm-hmm. then check out our website at thebinge.us and I'll, I'll include in there a timestamp to let you know what time the Unforgettable review starts so you can miss all of the Colossal spoilers. Because this is a movie that people really want to see because, yeah, wow, yeah. have they done a great job marketing it. Yeah. Like, I'm sure you guys might be listening to this right now thinking, like, you guys must be fucking crazy to not like this movie. It looks so good. We know it looks good. Yeah. It looks amazing. That's why we hate it. <laughs> That's why we're so mad. <laughs> um, it's like the Da Vinci Code. If you just, like, go to the website and then get the timestamp from there and then come back to the podcast and skip ahead, <laughs> you eventually... Listen, I wish there was a faster way. There isn't. Um, so yeah, so we have Anne Hathaway uh, is a failed internet writer with who's uh, dating cousin once again cousin Matthew, sweet cousin Matthew, who is looks even thinner. <laughs> He's really <laughs> the remarkable thing is that he isn't looking any stronger. He just looks yeah. thinner. That's true. It's weird. That's true. Whatever diet he's on. Yeah, it's, I think he's just not eating. I personally have never wanted to get stronger, just thinner. So oh, well, I need to go okay. on the Cousin Matthew diet. It's just not something you see in Hollywood very often. Mm-hmm. Well, he's British, so maybe there's just like a genetic resistance to putting on muscle mass. <laughs> um, so they're in a relationship in New York City, and he's had it with her, kicks her out. Uh, she goes back to her hometown. Um, stays in her parents' like beautiful house, conveniently that, empty. Yeah, so she, that's a weird thing that isn't really explained. And she just starts crashing there. She finds the key under the mat, and she's just living there. She's a, she's an alcoholic. She stays up all night and sleeps all day. And that that's made clear time and time again that that's like her particular pattern. Yeah. And within 24 hours of coming back home, she runs into Jason Sudeikis, who is an old friend from grade school, and he owns a bar, conveniently enough. Mm-hmm. And they start palling around. Um, he, he has two good friends. And, and they're all drunks together. They're all drunks together. They stay up all night at the bar, close it down, and then he starts helping her out. He gives her some furniture. He gives her a job at the bar. Um, she has no money, nothing. And then she, about two days in, uh, she starts to piece together that, uh, you know, she wakes up, she learns that there's this monster taking over soul and she thinks it's crazy. And then she starts to piece together that the monster has a lot of traits that are very similar to her, especially this one particular um, uh, tick that she has. So she starts to piece that together. Um, and that's probably like, you know, the the height of the fun, right, that you see in the trailers, that she comes back with them. You know, it only happens at 8.05 in the morning, so you have to have been up all night drinking. She cuts through this park, and, um, you know, she, like, gets her gets the guys to put on, like, the live streaming uh, in Seoul, and then, like, pretty much, like, does the same actions, and they can see how she's, like, controlling the monster. Um, and at that point, it starts to take a turn. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she's, you know, she's doing this, she's really drunk, she falls over and the monster kills hundreds of people and she's, doesn't think it's fun anymore. She feels really responsible and, um, and at that same time, Jason Sudeikis steps in to try to help her and you see that he also appears as a monster in soul, but as a giant robot. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't really explain explain very well like that it's only the two of them like nobody else ever jumps into the park to right. see if like anybody else like it's the park and like anyone who steps in there would be a monster right but they clearly immediately figure out it's only the two of them that this happens to and so it turns into this very uh it gradually becomes more about this uh very toxic abusive relationship uh between um Sudeikis and Hathaway mm-hmm. uh because you know he since he gets a taste of of this kind of 
I don't know if you can call it power or what, mm. of going into this magical sandbox and becoming this enormous robot in Seoul, South Korea, that's you know able to kill people as well. Um, and you know she wants out, but now he, you know, it turns out that all this time he's had really intensely strong feelings for her, mm-hmm. and um, and that starts to manifest in just really overt abuse, right? And that's when it starts to get real serious. Yeah, they sort of, um, they kind of have oh, this she, she's robot with one of his versus. Friends. She, oh right. Yeah, she's like hooking up with one of his friends, and that starts to really push him over the edge, jealousy wise. Mm-hmm. And they have this sort of confrontation in the park where he's he's drunk and he's trying to. He thinks it's kind of fun to stomp around, which mm-hmm. is like you know very dangerous dangerous for what's going on in Seoul. And then they kind of have this standoff, so it becomes like monster versus robot. And again, everything is like up on YouTube and on Facebook, right? And people are like Team Robot or Team Monster. You know, it becomes mm-hmm. this this like sensation. Um, and at which- that. Which is a thing that would be funny in a yep. certain way, except for this is played very, very seriously. It takes mm-hmm. his characters very seriously. Which... Because then they start to get very physical. Yeah. Uh, you know, she slaps him. The world rejoices because the world now p- points that the robot is kind of the bad guy and that the monster is there to actually, like, help the people. Um, and so they just keep going back every morning. And he now that he has this power, he's using it as a way to keep her there and keep her as his. Because he basically just threatens to keep showing up there mm-hmm. at 8.05 every morning right. and stomp all over Seoul mm-hmm. unless she stops him. Yeah, I think there's also a piece of it where we're supposed to think that, you know, so he resents that she went out and kind of like lived a bigger life mm-hmm. for a while. Was living in New York. And he was always stuck in their small town. And so he kind of is like, oh, well, now I get to like have my my bigger moment and, you know, be this, 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 this sensation, even though it's, you know, being a giant destructive robot, but he'll take it. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, yeah, so it, it, it just, wow, it's sort of like buzzkill is the fucking word uh, mm-hmm. for what goes on in the final act of this movie. And it also feels like really uh, forced together. Like this part of the story didn't didn't feel like it was done it as cleverly. Um, they keep having flashbacks to them as kids oh, uh, because right. this whole thing doesn't make any sense at all. Which if you would have just left it where it doesn't make any sense and you're mm-hmm. not going to try to explain it, like right. that would have been fine. We are already believing that this happens, which is crazy. Right. But they keep like like going back to them as kids and you know you get this in very small bits throughout the movie but basically the story is like one day they're walking to school there's a big storm she's carrying this like a uh, diorama of soul which blows into what is now this playground and he goes in to, to save it for her and he she you know she she follows him and then she sees him get it and then he stomps on it because he's like jealous of her or i don't even know what the purpose of that was yeah and then at that exact moment lightning strikes um, hitting them both. She has this monster toy in her backpack. He has the robot. This is, this is right, just boring. This is right, dumb right, to right. explain. It's dumb to watch. So, and let, let's talk through the actual finale of the film. Mm, oh, right. Um, so, I don't even... <laughs> <laughs> now that you try to put it to words, you're like, God, it was what? ridiculous. Somehow she thinks... Oh, okay. So, he, he goes and he does these... He, like, really turns up the crazy um, from being, you know... He's, he starts off with the kind of guy that he's going to manipulate her by, like, being really nice to her and having her be indebted to him by giving her a job and giving her, like, furniture for a house and, and being, like, a support system to someone who, uh, when he feels threatened because her ex-boyfriend comes into town, like, sets off this giant firework basically catching his bar on fire. Like, he just turns into, like, a maniac. Um, and then he, you know, again, he physically, uh, abuses her and shows up in her house, like in the dark, like some, you know, a creepy stalker. 
Um, so she she she's had enough. She can't defeat him physically in the playground. So she thinks it's a. She figures out. She thinks she has a hunch mm-hmm. that the only way to solve this problem is for her to fly to Seoul, show up in that sort of same location where the monster shows up, and then. I never even thought this would have been an option. This doesn't even make sense, even in this world that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. By her stepping in there, she becomes a monster back in that playground in upstate New York. So while he's a human in the playground, the monster right. shows up and then grabs him and then just throws him really far. Right. <laughs> so, the and somehow the people in Korea who are like, I don't even understand how they're still allowed to be downtown. I yes, feel like the city should have been evacuated. I know. It is like, we, let's talk about this right now because something this movie has not been dinged on barely at all in all the praise mm. is the fact that it uses the people of South Korea as completely stock one-dimensional props that are there just running, to be destroyed, demolished, screaming, running, doing all the cliche things that we know from like the Godzilla movies. Uh, you know, like a different country, but you know, like, and they are, and they keep showing up. They know exactly it happens at the same time each day, and every single day it happens. All the townspeople are down there just watching and just waiting and to surprise again. Run in horror. Right. And all the helicopters are there, even though they're going to get smacked out of the sky. Mm-hmm. And like, it, 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 it just, it's so insulting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people falling in the you know falling in the streets, running mm-hmm. kind of stampedes. And not a single character is developed. No, there's the oh, there's one at the end who has a speaking line, uh, which yes. is uh, also a kind first. of a, a funny funny situation. But they but all these people who are still allowed downtown uh, somehow recognize that like the weird hand motions she's doing, kind of solo by herself, are defeating the robot who's also in town, even though she's not touching the robot. So the robot, like, you know, gets thrown in... Because they can't see what's going on in, in New York. I, the whole... Wow. Okay. Um, and then she throws the robot. He disappears. And everyone cheers her. Right. Yeah. Like, big white epitome lady saved white us all. savior. <laughs> right. She then leaves and goes to a bar, um, you know, to, to kind of, like, just kind of get away from, from it. The bartender comes over and is like, are you okay? Because she still, like, is all kind of messed up from her physical fight with... Jason Sudeikis, and she's like, do you want to hear a story? And the woman's like, oh, okay. And, like, that's where it ends. That's the it. Only, the only... Roll credits. Like, Korean actor is just there to hear the... The, this, the white lady tell the story about how she what saved. she just did. I mean, while we're talking about it, that thought did occur to me that the structure could be intentional in the sense that the first two acts of the film, you do almost feel like, like you are drunk or high. And you're mm. having this like goofy good time, and then it, and then it's the experience of like sobering up, mm-hmm. because Gloria and Hathaway's character is goes through a very sobering mm-hmm. realization where, and I think that's part of why things look differently to her, because suddenly you know she's because she also stop she tries to stop drinking. She at stops that point. drinking, yeah. And then when she stops drinking, um, then the film does get very dark, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and then suddenly she realizes that she, while she's like, had poor judgment from her um, from all of her drinking. She has allowed herself to, she's been, you know, sort of preyed upon and she's been sort of boxed into a corner by this, this, this dude. Maybe that's why we don't like it. Maybe we don't like the cautionary tale of what happens when you keep drinking. <laughs> We're like, boo! <laughs> <laughs> Go back to drinking, exactly. you have more fun. Like, this is the kind of moralizing I like. <laughs> <laughs> the Romanians do it better. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, but even with that said, though, like, you know, it's, but it, it's, it's disingenuous because, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it, you know, the, the, the bait on the hook here is this, like this ridiculous 
conceptual, goofy, good time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then before you know it, you're watching like Anne Hathaway like sobbing and you know like trying to fight for her life uh, from Sudeikis. And um, I was irritated with the way that I felt like a lot of leading critics tried to shoehorn this movie into like convenient political narratives when it came out and at TIFF. Like, this is about toxic masculinity or this is about Gamergate. I'm like, oh my God. How is it about I'm, I'm Gamergate? Like, well, I mean, I guess since like they're, they're it's almost like it's like a video game where like, you know, he's trying to, he's like, I'm, I'm not letting this woman play, be the one who's playing. I'm going to play and I'm going to win. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't and know. Trying to make it unsafe for her and da 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 da. But like, like guys, not every movie where a guy is an asshole gets to be praised as a masterpiece because it's about toxic masculinity. Yeah, I mean, this was a, like a really, I don't know, shitty, obvious way that that didn't fall didn't make sense in terms of the story. Like the fact mm-hmm. that they had to explain like the backstory and. I mean, it could have been two separate situations. Yeah. Um, but having the the monster battle, you know, be right. this like exponentially larger, physically larger, mm-hmm. um, you know, ba- but that doesn't even align no, in terms n- of their dynamic. None of it. None of it ultimately makes sense. Not a bit of it. Uh, you know, like it's so contrived, but in these mm-hmm. like just in in like none of the threads tie up. Mm-hmm. Like it has all these kind of like half started ideas. That's the, that that's the main issue. Yeah, like half baked ideas that aren't fully done. Mm-hmm. And so there's like a few like loose threads where you're like, oh, that's kind of in, but then you try to you follow it a little bit, and it just it unravels. You're like, oh, never mind. Right, because even when when you see uh, cousin Matthew come back, which he has a real name, but. <laughs> Not here. His real name is Legion. We see that he also is kind of a bit of an abusive boyfriend. Like he's verbally abusive to her. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, uses, you know, it's kind of that dynamic where he uses her, you know, obvious faults um, Mm -hmm. against her and like uses that to keep her down. But like Mm -hmm. keep make him make her need him. Right. Um, But that also doesn't really go anywhere because at the end of the day, he's just like outmanned by the more (laughs) abusive guy which mm-hmm. i don't know what what the the point of that is either right and even if it were about you know like if it's about like the obliviousness of uh you know they're like oh this is about like messy americans thinking that everything is about them or even um the the way that with americans and the power of like the american sort of footprint that like it, it there are giant global ramifications mm. for american actions uh, but mm-hmm. then that's ultimately still not really that, that's another thread where you're like, oh. no, but nope. then then you follow you're like, oh, no, no, because otherwise they would have done X, Y and Z and they did not do any of that shit. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I feel like you thought like people thought of that after the movie was made. Yeah. Like, that was not like a, a, a thought that went into making the movie. Yeah. No, the movie is just it's incoherent. It's just incoherent. And I don't I don't buy Anne Hathaway as a, a drunk mess. Uh, you know. She's. I always thought that my first Anne Hathaway monster movie would be her inevitable biopic about late career Judy Garland, but here, <laughs> but here we are. And uh, <laughs> you know, when she's played Waystoids convincingly in Rachel Getting Married, mm. and less convincingly, like in the movie Havoc, mm. uh, which if if listeners haven't seen, uh, is a movie where she plays this sort of like um, white uh, privileged girl living in the Pacific Palisades who wants to be like a like around the way girl and it is a horrifying film <laughs> um you know there's a scene where uh she and bijou phillips uh like are singing uh the entirety of can i get a uh and then they like hook up uh oh wow <laughs> it's that kind okay. of movie uh so anne hathaway i mean i'm not gonna i'm not i'm not a half a hater 
Mm-hmm. I, you know, I love Anne Hathaway and I think she has been, she has been put through more than enough criticism mm-hmm. um, for undue reasons. Um, but, you know, in this film, like, you know, she's, she's fun, but oh, she's almost too, I mean, she's, Anne Hathaway is always so likable. Mm. And, you know, in this movie, mm-hmm. you're just kind of like, oh, isn't she goofy and adorable? Yeah. She's adorable is what she is. And, um, and she's not, yeah, she's just not quite convincing uh, in the role because she has always has that sort of Hathaway shine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, she just can't put her lighter under a bushel. Just can't. There's no <laughs> bushel big enough to cover that Hathalite. I don't know if I'm going to give it a send it back. No. I don't think it's worth your time. And if you are looking forward to it, I think that you'll be disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. I but mean, it's still not so terrible that I, I would say send it back. Yeah, I mean, it's def- I, I, I really wanted to see it a second time. Um, I was not able to uh, see it again before the show. Um, so I'm basing this on, on a seven-month-old screening of the film. Um, but then Rebecca did just see it just two days ago. And, um, and I was brushing up on, uh, you know, reading my initial take on it. And, and yeah, I mean, like, I, I have to say that I was relieved when I ran to Rebecca after the movie and she said she didn't like it. But, <laughs> but I also, if she had said she really did like it, I would have been like, awesome like i want this movie to be great i want to like be wrong about it but i feel like you know like you know you and i don't always line up on on any movie and uh in this case like we both just independently reached the conclusion that like no this movie is a yeah so it's it's i can't fully say send it back because it does have like it does it swings the fences in such an ingenious way with it's just like batshit bonkers premise Mm -hmm. you have to at least like applaud that kind of just bracing originality but um, but yeah, at the same time, like just please, if you still are gonna see through your idea of seeing this film, then just bring the expectations way down. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, and then maybe you'll have a better experience of it than we did. And we'll just sit here and mourn the movie that never was, but could have been. Mm. Um, it is colossal, and it's rated R for language. Oh, that was I was kept thinking like, what movie was it recently where I was like. Oh, I did. I'm so mad that it got made this way. Uh, it was Table 19. Oh, right. Where uh-huh. I was like, the premise yeah. is so good, but the execution is so bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, this is another one of those. Except for this premise, it's just like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> more of a more of a head scratcher. Uh, oh, that's a that's a good little pun because of the movie. Oh, yeah, she, she had that little head scratching stick. That's Well, she's just scratching her wig. Um. So that brings us to movie number four. Which is another spoil that shit, and it is unforgettable. Barely coping with the end of her marriage, Tessa learns that her ex-husband David is now happily engaged to Julia. Trying to settle into her new life, Julia believes she has finally met the man of her dreams, the man who can help her forget her troubled past. Soon, Tessa's jealousy starts to consume her, and she will stop at nothing to turn Julia's paradise into the ultimate nightmare. How well do you really know Julia? You are a survivor. And what happened was not your fault. I only had David and Lily. You took everything away from me. Who sent you flowers? What do you mean there's no record of who sent the arrangement? Take a deep breath. No one knows where you live. Where's your ring? How come you haven't been wearing it? She's messing with So me. I was expecting you to love this. There's women fighting. Mm-hmm. That's all. That's all. That's it. That's usually all I need. Uh, I, I I certainly didn't expect to love it. I was very excited to see it. I'll mm-hmm. say that. Uh, because I think, you know, you just take one look at the trailer and you're like, oh, okay, so it's the latest version of that movie. 
Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's the latest version of Fatal Attraction. It's the latest mm-hmm. version of, you know, any story about a marriage threatened by a crazy lady. Um, and, you know, whether that be that or The Hand That Rocks the Cradle mm-hmm. uh, or uh, or The Great Obsess starring one Miss Beyonce Knowles <laughs> opposite an actress of surely equal star power, Miss <laughs> Allie Larder. Uh, so this is the latest version of that. And uh, let's talk about it, shall we? Please. So I'm going to dive in and going to tell you everything that happens in this movie. Um, so if you don't want to hear that, then just know that I'm going to give it a send it back. So there's my rating. And now, Unforgettable. So Rosario Dawson um, lives in San Francisco. And um, she has a top job as an executive at a place that is, quote, online storytelling which is a job that makes less sense the more you think about it. <laughs> um, and as the film begins, she is leaving her job because she uh, has met this great guy um, who used to work at Merrill Lynch and has quit to go and open a brewery in Southern California. And so she leaves behind her, her great weird job and her boss, Whitney Cummings, and uh, and then goes down to Southern California to start a new that sounds believable so far. Sure. Happens all the time. Brewery in Southern California right. is a really solid detail, you I know, think. We know someone recently who moved from San Francisco to Southern California. It happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and yeah, the thing about like, yeah, some Merrill Lynch douche being like, oh, I'm going to take my money and open a brewery. Yep. Like, yep, that tracks. This actor that looks just like Tom Brady. Yes, Jeff Stoltz, who I know from the great short-lived Fox comedy Enlisted. So um, they move down there, and uh, Jeff Stoltz has a nine-year-old, nine-ish-year-old daughter, um, Lily, with uh, his ex-wife, Catherine Heigl. Uh, Catherine Heigl has been styled in the film to look like a somewhat less glossy Ivanka Trump. <laughs> she has, <laughs> she's got a platinum blonde blowout with a severe center part and a series of figure-hugging knee-length white or cream dresses. So, uh, this is a, this is a Jason Leroy review. (laughs) This is, this is exactly for the the textbooks. And, uh, so, and, uh, at first, you know, so Rosario Dawson is very nervous about becoming like a stepmother. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, she is, she's never had a kid and she, you know, she wants to be good at it. And she, of course, doesn't want to step on the mom's toes and, you know, it's clear the mom's going to be around, um, and at first they have sort of like a, a, a fairly, um, you know, superficially friendly, uh, a civil, uh, relationship. Um, but then, uh, Catherine Heigl finds out that they are engaged and this is what mm. sends her into a tailspin. So it turns out her relationship, Catherine Heigl's relationship to Jeff Stoltz ended because Catherine Heigl had an affair. Um, and, uh, and so she deeply regrets this. Um, but according to Jeff Stoltz, like it really wasn't even that it was just that he was never happy with her. However, she is extremely, uh, dismayed, uh, because she gave up her whole life from where they had lived. Cause I think they had been living in Stanford and, um, and then, so she gave up her whole life to move with him to chase this brewery dream. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> And so, I mean, she, sadly, it all still sounds very again, believable. It all still tracks. This all, this is California. This, yeah, you know, everyone's here is just yeah, chasing you, a brewery dream. You thought Big Little Lies spoke accurately of this of this state? <laughs> oh no, the characters of this film much more on target. So yeah, so she's pissed. Um, she also has um, 
she has a mother who's played by Cheryl Ladd of Charlie's Angels mm-hmm. fame. And the mother is sort of like, uh, it's sort of like, it, we're meant to be like, okay, so like the mother is basically her. But, um, but, you know, and she's, you know, very like, okay, everything needs to be perfect. Uh, you know, wearing all white and, and, you know, pointing out the dust and everything. And so, so we're getting all the background on like what made Catherine Heigl into basically the nut job that she is now. Um, but, you know, but so what happens is when she is, they're at this like big brewery opening or they're, they're celebrating a big thing because they like sold their beer or something. And uh, <laughs> so they finally made a sale. Uh, <laughs> so they're like big night, the brewery. And, uh, and Catherine Heigl is, you know, trying and she, she insists on giving, um, a toast. Um, mm. she gives a toast and she's just trying to like be happy. You are happy for her ex-husband. And then she looks at, uh, she glances down and sees that Rosario Dawson's phone is on the table and she's getting texts from Whitney Cummings being like, oh my God, like, I can't believe you guys are getting engaged or like, oh, you got the ring looks beautiful or things along that, which it didn't you, look that beautiful. She didn't notice the ring first. Which, if you haven't already, tur- turn off your settings on your phone if you have the text actually show up in full on your screen. Mm. Don't do that. That's a rookie mistake. <laughs> turn that off. Don't have it so the full text displays. Those are private. Look what happens. This is a really cautionary tale about what happens if you don't do that on your phone. All these movies have lessons. They do. Don't <laughs> be a Nazi. Don't be in corruption. Don't be a drunk. And don't... Turn off your notification settings. It's a common thread. It's clear. It's a clear thread. Um, so so she steals... So Catherine Heigl steals Rosario Dawson's phone um, from the brewery party. And um, takes it back to her home and um, plugs it into her... Eats it. Oh, okay. <laughs> just sobbing, just eating it, just chewing it up. <laughs> just like a fucking bitch. Um, and so... Glass breaking... <laughs> <laughs> circuits shorting exactly this is the last thing i've eaten in weeks <laughs> um and so Break uh diet. so she plugs the the phone into her uh, into her laptop and then she looks up rosario dawson in like a public records database and um and then finds her birthday on there and then uses that to correctly guess the password and this amazing mm, thing happens. Another cautionary tale. <laughs> yes. And because uh, Rosario, Rosario Dawson's character, we're meant to believe is some sort of like Luddite about technology. Mm. Like she's not on Facebook. She's not on social media at all. Like if she apparently doesn't understand. Like, but didn't she work online as a social media teller? Or she sto- sure did. Online okay, storyteller. Okay. Which I still don't understand. And like the only thing I can think of is in her when this sort of like they like take people's stories and like turn them into like beautiful narratives mm. um but that's not a real thing no. <laughs> and um so just be like oh yeah the the leading online story i mean we're online storytellers i mean kind of we might even be leading <laughs> uh so anyway so once she unblo- unlocks the phone the contents of the phone appear on the screen as like a a folder flow is it an iphone yeah <laughs> it's an iphone and yet it shows up just like all these folders and the folders have names like birth certificate <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. And so Catherine Hackle's like, yes. And so she like looks at the birth certificate and is like getting her information. And then there's one that says restraining order. And, uh, and she's like, ooh. Are they photos of these things or are they actual like documents? They are like, there's like a scan of her birth certificate that we're supposed to believe is on her phone labeled birth certificate. <laughs> Uh, so it's really everything you could ever need. It's very handy. Um, so don't keep too many things on your phone. <laughs> Another lesson here. 
Um, and so, uh, and so the restraining order, she opens up and we, at this point in the film have gotten glimpses and know that Rosario Dawson had been in an abusive relationship and, um, she has a restraining order out against this ex who used to beat her. And so Catherine Heigl, uh, looks on the restraining order, finds the guy's name, looks him up on the same public records database, <laughs> doesn't even need to filter through like different matches, just goes right to the right Does one. Does he have like a very unique name? His name is Michael Vargas. Oh, come on. Michael. Even you know how many Jason Leroy's are out there with warrants. Michael Vargas goes right to him. And then um, in, in, in a really nice touch of UI, there is literally a connect on Facebook button. <laughs> on the public records database? Public records. <laughs> it says connect on Facebook. And she's like, click. This is the web we need. <laughs> <laughs> this movie's got good ideas. And um, and uh, and so she creates a fake profile for Rosario Dawson on Facebook mm-hmm. and reaches out to the ex and starts catfishing him. I mean, these are all things we've done. Go on. Yes, yes. You're like, so far, so believable. Um, and so she starts to set up this whole kind of like, you know, she's basically messaging him as Rosario Dawson being like, hey, baby, like, I'm so sorry I said all those things. You know, like, I want to get back with you. Um, and, um, and, uh, then she, Catherine Eichel is also finding ways to gradually plant doubts in Jeff Stoltz's mind about like, oh, Rosario Dawson is like, she's bad with her daughter. Um, and she, you know, she like, Catherine Eichel sends like some sort of cat burglar into the house while Rosario is showering and like steals the engagement ring, steals some of her panties, steals like a watch and like sends it all to the ex to be like, here's some things from me. And, Whoa. uh, yeah. And so, uh, so it starts to, so it's a combination of gaslighting Rosario Dawson, a thing that she's crazy and then turning her fiance against her. Like, Oh, maybe you're not going to be, maybe you wouldn't be a, a good partner for me. Maybe you're bad for our daughter and cybercrime and, 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 and cybercrime. Uh, so that's all happening. Uh, and, uh, and there's, <laughs> there's a scene, um, there's a really sort of wild, uh, a montage scene where, uh, Rosario Dawson and Jeff Saltz are at a dinner party and she's feeling really disconnected from him, and she's watching some other woman flirt with him, and um, and uh, and and Catherine Heigl put in her mind um, that like she's like, oh well, you know, when we were together, he was insatiable, wanted a different position every night, and you know, drops all these like you know like lore details, and so Rosario Dawson takes him into the bathroom at this dinner party, and they just like have like a wild craze suck and fuck fest, um, and then that is then spliced against to to the soundtrack of like a pounding 50 shades of gray type song oh god um katherine heigl having like sexting over her catfishing um with the ex and like opening her robe and then opening it like not very far katherine heigl is like i'm not even showing any inner boob (laughs) so you just see a bit of clavicle and then we're then she starts flicking her bane while she's uh while she's catfish masturbating and then we watch that cut back and forth. Wow. It's that kind of movie. Oh. So uh, the ex shows up, uh, bidden, he thinks, mm-hmm. by Rosario Dawson, um, you know, which is where it kind of has its like sort of sleeping with the enemy type situation going on. And I like uh, that you're comparing it to all these fantastic movies, but this thing sounds like, sounds like a real mess. <laughs> well, I mean, like, not, I mean, the movies I haven't mentioned are all fantastic. I mean, like, Obsess is actually mm. a horrible movie. Um, but uh, and sleeping with the enemy. I wonder if we watched it again. If we would think it was fantastic. Oh, that would be a it's good exercise. I, it's certainly iconic. Yeah. But you know, it's a cultural reference. But so anyway, so the ex shows up, 
and uh, you know shows up at her house because Catherine Heigl gave him all the information and Rosario Dawson this whole time has thought that she's been very safe because she's like I'm not online I have no information out there about myself so she's very surprised to see her ex show up at her house oh so she's not a Luddite she's just being safe yeah yeah she's also yeah she's being safe I think it's, it's like kind of both and um, but uh, she's sort of like intentionally ignorant of any of that she's mm-hmm. like I don't want anything to do with it and um, so he shows up at her house and then he starts to, you know, sort of like make, you know, start to like touch her sexually every and, and she's like absolutely petrified out of her mind. And so they so, you know, he so she starts to, you know, push him away and then he gets triggered immediately and starts to like beat her up. And um, and then she finds a knife and stabs him in the leg and runs out of the house. So Catherine Heigl is sitting in a car outside watching uh, Wow! <laughs> with like a camera and with binoculars. And, um, and so then she like Ivanka trumps her way into the house and, um, and she like looks at him and she's like, well, this just won't do. And, uh, and he's like, what? Who are you? And then he's like, it was you. It was you. Wasn't you it? Figured it out. Um, and then she pulls the knife out of his leg and stabs him in the heart. Mm. And then she's like, <laughs> And then out she goes. Uh, so Rosario Dawson uh, gets arrested uh, for, uh, you know, she thinks just for like having gotten into this fight and stabbing the guy. And then they're just like, oh, no, he actually, uh, you know, he was stabbed in the chest. And she's like, I didn't do that. No, me do. And uh, and they're like, oh, what about all these pages and pages of Facebook chats with him? And what about you sent him this pair of panties? And, you know, so it's, she's been framed, uh, mm. you know, with all this shit. And, you know, she's like, uh, you know, she's like, I don't, that's not me. I didn't do that. I wouldn't do that. And and they're like, well, you have a Facebook with your name on it. And, um, and. The, so, oh. yeah. So Catherine Heigl can break into her phone, but the police can't figure out the IP address where the Facebook <laughs> account was used. The word IP, IP address is a term that is not used in this movie. I guess it is Southern California. There, uh, there is a line though, um, where, so they're like grilling her and grilling her and grilling her. And then almost in a line that sounds like it was added, like an additional dialogue recording. Someone says. Well, the DA called and all the evidence and circumstances that we have to let you go. <laughs> <laughs> and so then she's like, oh. And so, and Jeff Stoltz had like stopped in and was like, oh, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. But then the detectives take him outside and show him all the Facebook chats. And he's like, buys it. And mm-hmm. he's like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Mm, with that brewer's rage. And yeah, just brewer rage. He was like, right when I stole my, you know, Hefeweizen. <laughs> My first beer. <laughs> and uh, and so then he goes back to the home that Catherine Heigl uh, has with their daughter. And, um, and he shows up and he's like, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I, I want to see my daughter and I'm sorry about everything. And and uh, and Catherine Heigl is staying there dressed like Piper Laurie at the end of Carrie. Um, <laughs> and uh, and is like in the middle of like burning evidence in the fireplace as he's like walking in. And he's like, hey, I'm really sorry about, like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, okay. um, And then he puts it together. And she's standing there holding a fire poker. And he's like, uh, well, you know what? Like, I'm done. So, like, I'm going to take our daughter. And you're never going to see her again. And then, like an idiot, standing in front of his insane wife, who he's literally just walked in on burning evidence. And he sees a fire poker in her hand. And he still says, I'm taking our daughter. I'll, you'll never see her again turns his back to her mm. and then gets a very well-earned fire poker to the back of the head. That's that brewer's hubris that you hear so much about. That's <laughs> guilty of the crime of brewer's hubris. <laughs> Brubris, if you will. <laughs> Cause of death, that's I, that's brubris. What, I'm going to name my first IPA. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little hoppy, but, uh, you know, I should have known that, I guess. <laughs> I thought it'd be perfect. Um. <laughs> 
So then, uh, so the Rosario Dawson uh, is, you know, released from jail, and then she uh, and goes like, and she figures out like she's like, oh no, he's probably on his way over there right now, and um, and so she shows up at the house, and um, in a very nice gesture, first goes and gets the daughter who's sleeping upstairs and like takes her out of the house and like pops her in the back seat of a, of a car in the driveway so that she's not in the house for what's to follow. And, uh, and so she goes in and Catherine Heigl sees her and they start to have a fight and it's, it's definitely like super regressive. It just makes me wonder mm. like how they can film these scenes and feel good about themselves. Mm. Cause it's sort of like, they're both holding the fire poker, pushing back and forth. And Catherine Heigl's like, he's mine. And you know, he's my husband and it's my family. And, um, you know, and then they try to give like some, um, you know, sort of like lip service to the idea of it not being um, as aggressive as it looks by having Rosario Dawson say, it's not about him. It was never about him. It's about my life, not yours. Mm. Um, and uh, that's which... that Josie and the Pussycats training. <laughs> And so then it's supposed to be, we're supposed to be like, oh, it's like this triumph of, you know, she's had all this internalized inferiority from her abusive relationship and now she's standing up for herself. This is a late breaking narrative that, we've, <laughs> that we have not had for the rest of the film. Um, and uh, and so it seems, it's one of those things where uh, it, it seems like she's not Catherine Heigl out. We all know that she has not been knocked out or not for good. And then Rosario Dawson goes over and, you know, the David, I think is the husband's name. David's laying there. And, you know, with his, like, you know, mouth taped. I'm like, oh, I wonder if Catherine Heigl is going to show up over the shoulder and he won't be able to say anything. Mm. And um, and then you look up at Catherine Heigl is, like, once again standing there looking like Margaret White branching a giant butcher knife. <laughs> and so she is, like, charging at Rosario Dawson. Rosario Dawson jumps backwards and um, and is, you know, like, against the wall, kind of basically trapped. And, um, and Catherine Heigl is standing there with a giant butcher knife. And Rosario is standing kind of with her back to a mirror. So Catherine Heigl like is like looking at her and then she like looks over her shoulder herself in the mirror and she sees that on her face there are scratches and bruises uh, from the fight that she had just had. And then she turns to Rosario Dawson and says, you ruin everything, don't you? And then she sort of like lets Rosario Dawson get the knife out of her hand. Um, and then Rosario Dawson is like standing there holding it to sort of be like back off. And then Catherine Heigl walks forward onto the knife. Mm. Because she had some scratches on her face. And she's like, well, fuck it. Wow. (laughs) Life's not worth living. Uh, I got my face marked up. And you know what? (laughs) You ruined this too. This is the moneymaker. Okay. Wow. Um, And uh, and so then she, you know, falls backward and is is like, and I think that some people in the audience were thinking it was going to be like, oh, she's framing Rosario Dawson for her own murder. Um, but we get that it was more like a more like a I'm bad, I should die moment because her final words are like, please don't let Lily remember me like this. Meanwhile, the daughter's been in the hot Southern yeah, California I, car for what seems like 45 minutes now. <laughs> clearly suffocating. The vultures have already had at her. Uh, several coyotes have come and gone. <laughs> Nature's really had at her. Um, and, uh, and so then... Um, uh, so then we cut to the, the usual reassuring shot with those ambulances and police cars. We see the husband being loaded in the back of an ambulance mm. and he's alert. And uh, Rosario Dawson is being treated by paramedics and little Lily runs up to her and she sweeps her into her arms. Um, and I thought it was going to end there, but then it's like, you know, a year later or whatever. Uh, they have moved back. Uh, Rosario Dawson, the husband and the daughter have moved up to San Francisco and, uh, and they're starting a new life there. Whitney Cummings is there. Everyone's having fun. Uh, and then there's a, there's like a knock at the door 
and Rosario Dawson goes over to answer it and opens it, and there stands Cheryl Ladd, the mother. Mm. And um, and so she walks in, and Lily sees her and runs up and grabs her, and she's like, "Oh, you're here! You're here!" And Cheryl Ladd says, "Yes, I'm here." And Rosario Dawson gets this look on her face, like, "Oh no!" Roll credits. Wow. So did they just sell the brewery then, or did they just <laughs> open a new one up here? You know, I think they he has the brewery is enough that he actually has other staff, oh. um, because there's a scene um, at like a some sort of like pop up festival, and they have mm-hmm. a little tent there pushing their brews, um, <laughs> and uh, and you know there's other guys working. So whenever David has to like run off because he's like, oh, Catherine Heigl made me think that Rosario Dawson lost my daughter, uh, <laughs> uh, so someone yeah. else is there. Yeah, so there's some other guys like, hey, man, whatever you want. Go ahead. You know, we, we got this. We got, hey, Brew Brisk coming right up. Uh, <laughs> yes. Thanks. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, that... It's just a lot of money that goes into opening a brewery. And it's with the tanks and the machines and the... Just wondering how that yeah. worked out. Uh, so, um, a few fun facts about this movie. Uh, it was once slated, and, and this is impossible for me to imagine with the current cast, but it was slated to star Carrie Washington and Kate Hudson. Oh. And it was going to be direct, directed by Ama Asante, who directed Bell. Huh. I have no idea how that was ever going to be a thing um, huh. with, with the script that is in this film. They were like, okay, we need one TV actor and <laughs> one movie actor. But those are interchangeable. Um, it wound up actually being the directorial debut of a veteran longtime producer named Denise no- uh, Denovi, who goes back to like, she produced Heather's. Like, she's been around forever. She's an history veteran, and this is a dubious directorial debut. Mm. <laughs> really unfortunate that now she, like, has this one just, like, terrible, awful, um, you know, uh, regressive movie on her directorial uh, uh, schedule. Another fun fact about it is that um, Steven Mnuchin still has a producer credit on oh, this movie. Oh, wow. Steven Mnuchin, his name comes up in the opening credits. Wow. Yep. That's crazy. Our very own, what's his role? Uh, Treasure? Yeah, yeah. Secretary? I want to say that's right. Yeah. I, so, I'm surprised he isn't, isn't telling people to go watch it yet. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah. So, uh, our, our, our Treasury Secretary is a, is a, is a financially benefiting uh, producer on this film. So, maybe so. this is a propaganda film. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, but the white person is crazy in this one. Uh, so, throw him off the scent. <laughs> right? Yes. It's 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 um it's misinformation. Mm-hmm. Is what it is. So they're one of those pro brewery films, or <laughs> small business. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, Catherine Heigl. This is a movie that lets her. So Catherine Heigl famously is was very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, she was fired off of Grey's Anatomy. Mm-hmm. Um, because she uh, was just. A nightmare and was you know criticized the writing of the show in the press and um and so she really just gets to unleash her full sort of like bitchy potential that i feel like she's tried to really squash down mm-hmm. so that she wouldn't get like typecast well i guess coming off of like criticizing grays and then criticizing knocked up mm-hmm. uh you know like so uh she really gets to just like look at rosario dawson like she's like seth rogan and shonda ryan's rolled into <laughs> one person <laughs> Uh, 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 so, which is a fun thing to watch. She also does a quite a bit of diabolical hairbrushing in mm. the movie. 
yes, there's lots of uh, there's lots of just lengthy scenes of her just like in front of Vanity running her comb through her Ivanka Trump blowout. Wow. Um, and also combing out her daughter's hair. A great source of recurring tension is that Rosa Dawson keeps sending back her daughter with knots in her hair. And she will not stand for that. Which leads to a scene in which she climactically cuts off all of her daughter's hair. Oh, wow. In a scene reminiscent of Mommy Dearest. Uh, So, and even though this movie suggests some great camp movies, let's be clear. This is not a great camp movie. Mm. This is just a very mediocre movie. Uh, It is not bad enough to recommend it. It's no the assignment. Absolutely not. This is just a mediocre movie produced by our treasury secretary. <laughs> <laughs> one of one of those. Um, and uh, so, and even though, so if you get stuck watching this movie, like you will have some some fun you can have with it. But um, I mean, it really it's it's dull. It's not that like it's it's yeah it's no assignment like you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a snooze. So you're giving it a send it back. Send it back. Not even for an airplane. You know, I mean, on an airplane, maybe. Uh, I mean, because like, you've in already sense... watched all the other movies on the airplane, <laughs> right? I mean, if there aren't a bunch of episodes of Veep, I was talking to mm-hmm. someone about this the other day. I th- Veep is, I think, the best airplane thing to watch. It's great, except they only ever have two episodes. I know that's the worst part. I know. Well, if you can bring it, if you can, like, you know, have a download to your 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 machine or whatever, then do that because there's something about Veep. But or... use a better password, <laughs> right? Captain Heigl yes. will get it. Yes, and and for God's sake, don't leave your um, birth certificate laying out on the flight or on your phone. Um, but yeah, no, Veep, like, because it's so fast paced, but it's mm-hmm. also really, like, upbeat. Mm-hmm. And, like, it just, like, your your mind's also not, like, deteriorating while you're watching it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I would really like to, after all this negativity, to just take a moment to praise Veep, which yeah, let's is. Let's talk about Veep. Let's talk about Veep. You know, it's back on the air now. Uh, first see, uh, mm-hmm. the season premiere was this past Sunday, and it's back in fine fighting form. Thumbs up to Veep. Thumbs up. <laughs> Binge it. Binge, <laughs> Binge Veep. But not unforgettable. Not unforgettable. Which is rated R for sexual content, violence, some language, and brief partial nudity. And that's it. That's all four. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Jason's on Twitter at Excess Faggage. I'm at Fight Balance. Uh, if you get a chance, subscribe to the podcast uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks again for listening. Bye. Bye-bye. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end. That's amazing. There goes the binge. binge.